Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thanks for joining the Credit Sites Sector Interview Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Griffiths, the Senior U.S. Investment Grade Strategist here at Credit Sites. And joining me today is Matt Woodruff, our Senior Investment Grade Transportation Analyst. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Zach. Good to be here. All right. Let's dive right in with our opener. If you could have a sneak peek at any piece of economic credit market, or sector-specific data for 2023, what would it be and why? That's a good one. Uh, I, I'm going to have to go with, you know, fourth quarter, maybe second half GDP numbers, um, you know, to, to take a look at my coverage here. I've covered the rails and the parcel companies, including UPS and FedEx. Really, these credits are highly defensive. The results of the companies are definitely affected by the economy, but really when the economy is outperforming or doing extremely well, these credits tend to underperform uh, when the economy's you know not doing as great. These credits tend to do pretty good. So really, we just want to know what's going on with the broader economy, and no one seems to know. None of my uh, rail management teams are willing to give any kind of detailed uh, second half uh, guidance. They just don't know at this point. So there's a lot of uncertainty around there, around the economy. And I think if I did have those numbers, I'd have a bigger conviction in, in what to do, you know, not only within the, the, the defensive sector, such as my IG transportation sector, but also more broadly. Definitely. It's interesting to just kind of consider all the, the macro cross currents right now and having a little bit better view into even where we finished the year and, and where we're going would be very helpful. And so with that backdrop, I know that you maintained your market perform recommendation for IG transportation heading into 2023. So can you take us through some of the key drivers of your recommendation and, and perhaps what key fundamental, technical and relative value considerations you're keeping an eye on as we start the year? Sure. Yep. So we start off the year at market perform on IG transportation. And the call has really been mostly kind of broader macro fundamental, just, in, you know, uh, a flavor of uncertainty on the economy, not really sure where we're going. Uh, to start off the year, IG rails were kind of giving up 27 basis points relative to the overall IG index. And that's definitely tight uh, relative to the historical relationship. Uh, it's about 15 basis points tight of the historical relationship. But even there, given the uncertainties and broader uh, macro concerns, we decided to keep that market perform on consistent with how we ended the year. Um, and really what we've seen so far is the market has done pretty well uh, within the first, you know, almost two months of trading. Rails are trading roughly where they were to start the year, maybe even a couple basis points wider. Uh, and the market, of course, as you know, has gone about 13 basis points tighter. So, um, you know, it's definitely underperformed. And, and you know, sitting here today, uh, we still think a market perform is, is, you know, 
continues to be appropriate at these levels, but certainly the sector's gotten relatively more appealing here in the first you know, couple of months, and we'll, we'll see where uh, valuations go here in the near term. Uh, but if they continue to become more appealing, uh, we would definitely want to revisit that market perform rack. So when you think about kind of the key drivers and of the underperformance that we've had so far this year, do you get the sense that some of it is driven by broad market optimism with respect to economic growth prospects this year? I feel like when I've talked to clients, if you go back three or four months, there was a lot of negativity around the economic growth outlook. And I feel like that kind of turned on a dime really over the past couple (laughs) of months, which has been surprising to me. I know that we have gotten some better economic data, but is that kind of the, the key driver of the underperformance in your view, or is there anything else to consider? Yeah, no question. Uh, you know, I, le- I think it's optimism on the now is really how I would characterize it. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty as to what's going to happen in the back half of this year. Uh, but the numbers lately have been all right. And, um, you know, even in the the transportation sector, we're not really seeing, you know, massive volume declines. Uh, so I think the rails volumes are slightly down to start the year. Uh, but mo- But many of the more profitable categories are actually up. Um, which kind of bodes well for for first quarter earnings for the rails. And I think a lot of companies, you know, that have reported, you know, it, it just hasn't been nearly as bad as as what maybe we had expected or anticipated coming into the year. Uh, still opportunity to get worse, of course, but so far so good. And so you kind of highlighted the underperformance we've seen. If that were to continue, maybe that is something that would cause you to consider changing your rec. Are there any economic catalysts or specific data points. I know we kind of previewed what you'd you'd like to know, but tracking the data that you can get at the same time anyone can get it. Are there any that you'd be watching in particular as they come out to that would potentially cause you to change your view in the near term? Yeah, so yeah, so it's volume and pricing, and volume is is modestly down. But I, as I mentioned, you know the mix, at least for the rail side, is pretty positive. So net net, that's probably positive. Um, you know. Thinking about the parcel space and what's going on over there, volumes are definitely down uh, over there as well. They've had you know significant pricing power on the parcel side, and that appears to be going away. Um, some of the things that we've seen on on pricing, of course, maritime, which I don't really cover any of these uh, maritime credits, but um, you know some of the pricing for maritime shipping is down like eighty percent year over year. So massive, massive declines coming uh, in from Asia. Um, and what we've seen for air freight, which you know, I do cover through FedEx and UPS to a to a lesser extent, um, the, the the rates there are also coming down from Asia. But interestingly, you know, what we've seen is the rates uh, from Europe have been relatively sticky, and I think that has to do with you know the products that are coming to the U.S. from each of those locales. You know, the products from Asia tend to be a little bit lower priced, a little more price sensitive, probably indicative of. Uh, you know, areas of the economy that are getting hit a little bit harder right now. Uh, and the stuff coming from Europe tends to be higher end. Um, and so uh, it's, you know, the pricing side uh, you know, has been surprisingly okay so far uh, on for Europe, but overall for the parcel space, I'm expecting some declines there. I'm expecting the parcel space to get hit with, you know, similar levels of declines as what we've seen with trucking. And trucking right now is running down about 2% um, year over year in terms of price. We think that could get a little bit worse. Um, but over on the rail side, uh, we just have not seen pricing declines and 
um, at all. And, and I think the one thing that management teams do agree on is that they're not going to give up price, uh, which when you're running a duopoly or an oligopoly is probably a little easier to do uh, for their business. Um, but, you know, a lot of these management teams on the on the rail side are talking about five, six percent price increases. Um, of course, they do have a new labor agreement. Uh, so their costs have gone up and they yeah, have an obligation to their shareholders to try to maintain their margins uh, to the extent that they can. Uh, it does seem like they're going to try to do that. So a bit of a mixed picture on the price side. You know, I'd say overall, you know, volume decline, certainly in the first half year. We'll see how the, the second half ends up. Great. That's definitely helpful to consider from a fundamental side and thinking about how margins can unfold for the different parts of your coverage space. But shifting gears a little bit, how do you think clients are positioned in your sector? What's Have you gotten a sense of, is there a generally a positive or a negative view? Is, are people wanting to be in the defensive IG transportation sector? How, how do you see that right now and how do you expect it to unfold? Yeah, so um, I don't get a lot of feedback on on client positioning. Um, you know, I think a lot of clients, you know, for your traditional asset managers, kind of use IG Rails as is somewhat of a kind of a filler into their portfolio. Um, but the feedback that I have gotten lately is just kind of what I shared, you know, earlier to start off, which is the valuations did get you know relatively rich, and you know maybe uh, a tendency to move some of that positioning into some more aggressive, more beta type stuff. Uh, definitely heard from them on that. Um, but, you know, is, is the attractiveness, relative attractiveness of the sector uh, improves, I would expect clients to, to kind of add positions as the sector becomes, you know, more relatively attractive, I guess. Um, one thing I would note is that, you know, we've had two issuers in the market so far this year, Norfolk Southern uh, and then Union Pacific. And both of them really didn't get all of the financing done that I expected out of them. Um, you know, I expected at least uh, 600 million, you know, if not a billion out of Norfolk Southern, they did about uh, half a billion. Um, and they did it at really nice pricing, by the way. So pricing wasn't an issue at all. But nevertheless, they didn't really get everything they were looking for. Uh, and then Union Pacific came with uh, two $500 million uh, bond issues. And that was also about half of what I expected out of them. I expected them to do some refi and then also some shareholder rewards. Um, you know, decent pricing there as well. So it's not like the pricing was a problem, but, uh, you know, they didn't quite get done everything that, that I thought they would get done. So that, that could be indicative, too, of what, what people were thinking, you know, a little earlier in the year as far as their willingness to add to the space. Interesting. Well, that's a perfect segue to where I wanted to go next, which is broadly your new issue activity expectations for 2023 and what you think will be driving deals or keeping issuers on the sideline. Yeah, sure. So for 2023, we're thinking about 10, uh, 11 billion in new issuance. And that is, you know, a little bit down from last year's uh, almost 12 billion of issuance, uh, you know, across coverage. And the way to think about the group is the group that I cover has about 170 billion of debt outstanding. Every year you get, you know, roughly seven, eight billion of, of refinancing activity as this stuff just kind of comes due. Um, and then most of the rails have kind of set EBITDA, you know, debt to EBITDA type targets. Um, and then you see, you know, additional issuance, issuance just kind of uses top ups that are used typically for share repurchase in the space. So, you know, slightly down from last year, but largely, you know, on par. This is not a space that has uh, super large acquisitions typically, um, but we do have one coming up in Norfolk Southern as a $1.6 billion acquisition. 
of Cincinnati Southern Railway that I think will be mostly debt funded. That's a first quarter 24 event. And I actually don't, you know, given everything that's going on with them right now, I don't really expect that uh, them to be in the market anytime soon. They don't, certainly don't need the funding immediately. So I'm going to kick that out to 2024 as far as a likely issuer, not including that one in our totals. Um, but, you know, overall, the, the market's quite comfortable with the group of issuers. And I think that, you know, in, in virtually any market, this is a group of issuers that, that is able to to tap the market uh, to some degree, even if it's not everything that they wanted at the moment. I know you mentioned that M&A in the pipeline, Norfolk Southern deal maybe is a 2024 event right now. Are there any ramifications from M&A in the past that's kind of making its way through the market now or anything else on the M&A front that you're keeping a, a close eye on? Yeah, for sure. So the the big acquisition that happened, you know, recently was a couple of years ago, a year and a half now, um, was the acquisition of Kansas City Southern uh, by Canadian Pacific. And so this is a $30 billion acquisition, a huge deal that was only partially debt funded, so not overly damaging to the balance sheet. Um, and the way that these large acquisitions work is they get placed into voting trust first. And so that's where uh, Kansas City Southern has remained since you know 2021. They've been stuck in voting trust and they're kind of waiting for the approval uh, from the Service Transportation Board. The Service Transportation Board is uh, kind of the governing body for the roads in, um, in the U.S., and uh, at this point, they're coming down to the wire, and it's it's a bit of an interesting one because as part of the financing package, so it's 31 billion, 70% equity funded, remainder debt funded. Uh, as part of the financing package, there was two bonds, the 2031 bonds and the 2041 bonds um, that came with a 101 SMR that would potentially be triggered. The date on this uh, special mandatory redemption is coming up here in March. Uh, 25th. So investors are very much interested in this SMR date. Um, the rest of the transaction or the rest of the funding really didn't have this SMR. So it's really just the 31s and the 41s um, that are coming into play here. The last piece of information that the STB really needed was an environmental review, uh, which they got a couple weeks ago. And then post that environmental review, there's a 30-day wait period before they opine. So the timing of this is going to be pretty close to that March 21st date. Uh, we're expecting the first week of March to hear from uh, the STB. And I think Canadian Pacific mentioned even earlier today um, that they're expecting, they're still expecting uh, the STB to opine on this in the first half. And of course, they're expecting it to go through. Um, you know, our opinion in the situation uh, is, well, uh, just to give you a little bit more color on all, all the fun stuff that's been going on there, the DOJ, which actually has no jurisdiction in uh, the rail matters, it's really the STB that, that makes these decisions, but the DOJ inserted itself uh, into the situation by sending a letter to the STB, just an open letter saying, hey, if you need help, just let us know. So that caused a little bit of consternation among market participants. This is actually not the first time that the DOJ has sent a letter. Uh, the DOJ also sent a letter before the deal was placed into voting trust and the original closing, uh, STB politely declined uh, you know, everything that they had to, to contribute uh, for that one. So we're expecting a similar result here and for the DOJ's vote to really not matter. I've thought all along that this combination actually makes a ton of sense. I think it makes a lot of sense for customers. Uh, I think customers will benefit. And that's really the STB's primary uh, concern. Uh, they're, they're trying to get prices low for their shipping customers that are out there. Uh, and the combination of CP uh, with KSU really creates 
unique uh, platform for shipping uh, and the north-south routes from Canada all the way down into Mexico. Um, so I, I do think it's helpful for shippers. I do think the STB wants to approve this. Um, the STB has been pretty vocal about, hey, you know, uh, in the past they've said, you know, we don't really want private equity to buy you, Kansas City Southern. Uh, we don't really want, uh, you know, Canadian National to buy you, Kansas City Southern, but uh, Canadian Pacific, uh, that seems okay. So th they've been kind of setting up to approve this, and I do think it's going to happen, but the timing is going to get pretty interesting. Um, I actually have an underperform on Canadian Pacific because I think the bonds are just too tight. Investors, and rightly so, are kind of anticipating, hey, maybe this one-on-one SMR will come into play. Um, so I get it. I just think that uh, you know that this is going to get ultimately approved, and I think that it will happen just before that March 21st date. Um, so you know that I think covers a lot of the drama there. On, on the other side of it, though, has been Kansas City Southern's bonds which historically I've traded quite wide for the space. Uh, they've been among the most wide um, in the space being lower rated, you know, so mid, mid triple B uh, as opposed to high to low A for most of the other credits. Um, that, this is a credit that's traded wide and, you know, continues to trade wide. So that's one that, that we've liked. So we've gotten outperform on, on Kansas City Southern for that reason. You have seen Kansas City Southern actually outperform, you know, in the early goings here this year. So that's, uh, playing out, we I think that there's still some upside left uh, once once we get final approval here, probably 15 to 20 basis points, um, and then ultimately Kansas City Southern probably gets upgraded to that uh, high triple B level. Uh, they'll get an upgrade immediately from S and P once this thing closes, uh, which could happen, you know, over the next month, uh, two months here. Awesome. Well, that's very helpful. And I don't think we can talk about special circumstances or rec changes without covering Norfolk Southern, given all that's happened there. Sure. And so give us give us your take on that. I know you just came out with a piece. Can you kind of take us through your thinking and sort of what you've seen transpire over the past couple of weeks with the situation there? Yeah. So Norfolk Southern has been under pressure, no question, over the last you know two and a half weeks. Um, following what was a hazardous chemical spill and a derailment uh, in East Palestine, Ohio. Um, you know, so it's not uncommon to get derailments, you know, about a thousand derailments happen per year, but most of them do not involve, um, you know, nasty cancer-causing chemicals. And unfortunately, in this case, we did get some nasty cancer-causing chemicals that leaked out. Uh, vinyl chloride uh, is, is the primary concern, but there's also, you know, a longer list of chemicals that were spilled at the site. Um, and so really Norfolk Southern for the last two and a half weeks has been working on, uh, you know, taking soil that's been contaminated and making sure that it's moved to a facility that can treat that soil. And also there's been, I think, over a million gallons or something like that of uh, contaminated water that's been moved out of this of the area. Um, there was also a controlled release of uh, vinyl chloride, which was then burned, uh, and that created, you know, kind of a very uh, unpretty picture, uh, almost apocalyptic pictures that were taken uh, from the situation. They really did that in, in conjunction with the EPA to avoid what could have been, you know, a large uh, explosion. Uh, which, of course, would make the situation even worse, but nonetheless was not pretty. Uh, you know, there's been uh, very bad smells in the area. And so rightfully, you know, residents have a lot of concern around the soil contamination in the area, the air quality, uh, you know, potential for their their drinking water contamination to happen. Um, and, you know, we absolutely share that concern, um, you know, and and want to support the residents and everything that uh, that that they have uh going on there. And, you know, certainly, um, 
the EPA, you know, the good news is the EPA has come back with testing um, that has really just said everything is coming up clean as far as air quality and drinking water, including the well water um, that has been tested by the EPA so far. So that seems to be okay. Of course, you know, local residents continue to have concerns as, as rightly they should have. Um, so this will continue to be tested. And I think this is an event that um, is likely to, to stretch out for a while, but at least in the near term here, it seems like, um, you know, the damage was relatively well contained. You know, all the testing as far as the EPA is concerned has, has come up reasonably um, clean so far. So we'll, we'll continue to monitor the situation. Um, you know, the big question too for, for credit investors is, okay, well, how much is this going to cost? And, you know, is that going to affect their credit quality? Is that going to affect their credit ratings? Um, and most of the estimated damages from the incident are around 100 to 150 million. And it, it'll be some time before we get a final number here. Uh, we just don't, we won't know for, for a little bit. Um, but I think one thing that'll be extremely helpful uh, is at least the first uh, take that the National Transportation Safety Board will have on a preliminary report that we think will be out you know, over the next week, week and a half. Um, in there, they should. Uh, give an idea of, of what they think caused the accident. Um, what we know from kind of firsthand uh, reporting there that was confirmed by the National Transportation Safety Board uh, is that there was at least one hot box detector that went off. And a hot box detector is basically uh, you know, a box on the side of the rail uh, that uses infrared and its goal is to detect heat. And if there's heat there, um, you know, the conductor gets notification of that, and the idea is that they would hit the brakes immediately. Uh, and that is exactly what happened. Uh, in this case, the conductor, the second that they knew uh, that there was a hot box notification, they did hit the brakes immediately. Unfortunately, at that point, it was just too late. Uh, and the crash, you know, happened anyway, even though they got notification, um, you know, that the timing of it just didn't quite work out to be able to avoid that derailment. So it was definitely an unfortunate situation there. Um, so just given that piece of information, it seems like Norfolk Southern did uh, everything that they could right. And so we'll find out for sure everything that uh, National Transportation Safety Board knows uh, over the next you know, week or, or maybe a week and a half. Um, and so that'll be a kind of a key event going forward. But, you know, the way we're looking at it is with estimated damages of 100 to 150 million a year and a credit that generates, you know, in excess of a billion of cash flow after dividends uh, per year, uh, we just really think that Norfolk Southern is going to be able to handle the situation from a financial standpoint. You know, my own personal opinion, even though, uh, you know, mainstream media and social media have certainly run wild uh, with some with some theories out there that, you know, in a lot of cases are just, just flat out false. You know, when one of the things that came out initially was, oh, this is going to contaminate the entirety of the Cincinnati River, which, you know, 5 million uh, people downstream are going to be affected and, you know, everyone's drinking water is going to be contaminated. And that's just not uh, how this works. Just the, the volumes involved, the quantities involved are just not nearly enough uh, for that to happen. Um, and so it, the social media has kind of taken a, a life of its all its own here. And I think that has contributed to significant spread widening. Uh, you know, so the, this, the credit today uh, is at least 20, if not 30, 35 basis points um, wider than where it should be given its credit rating. Um, and I don't expect, you know, credit rating to, I don't expect spreads to get back to where they were uh, immediately. But a year down the line, um, you know, assuming there's no culpability uh, on Norfolk Southern's part, um, 
uh, or frankly, even if there is to to a certain degree, uh, we just think that the financial um, you know, stability of the company is is so high that they're going to be able to to uh, deal with this appropriately. Uh, you know, the company's definitely, you know, from my point of view, doing everything right. Um, the EPA is has been quite vocal and and coming out and saying, hey. Uh, you need to do everything. Um, you need to pay for all this stuff, basically. Um, and that's certainly something that Norfolk Southern can do and has been willing to step up. They've also made personal payments, inconvenience payments um, to individuals so far. I think something on the order of three or four million. Um, there will be, you know, likely some kind of large settlement, um, but I, I think it's a manageable uh, financial event. Um, and uh, you know, I think. A year from now, we're probably going to be in a situation where, you know, the nation is going to be looking back at this incident and say, well, that's, you know, it was, it was fortunate that things didn't get worse. And, and what can we be doing differently, uh, you know, from a, a, a broader industry perspective? And we've already kind of seeing some of that, uh, you know, with Buttigieg came out today with his list of, of things that he think might be a good idea to change. Um, so, there, you know, the, the whole industry is, is likely to be moving into uh a little, at least, uh, you know, more of an investment phase in the safety type stuff uh, than they were in, um, and and that's just a good thing. You know, it's a good thing for for the country. I think it's a good thing for the for the rails as well. Um, and so, yeah, I, I I overall, I just this is this is by far the widest credit that that I cover in the space now. And you know, I think given that that just really doesn't happen all that often, it's it's definitely something that investors should take a hard look at. Um, and I do, we did move to outperform uh, from our prior market perform recommendation, because at this point I'm really comfortable with, I don't see a lot of downside from here. Um, and I'm okay, you know, I'm, even if it's mostly a carry trade, at least uh, for the first couple months here until we get better clarity on what exactly happened, um, you know, I'm pretty comfortable that this will this will outperform with a, with a one-year time horizon. That's very helpful, and I think our clients would definitely be interested in that perspective. I can't believe a thousand derailments per year. Yeah, yeah. So like you know, uh, that, three a day, uh, most of which we don't hear about. Uh, of course, now we're hearing about more of them because everyone's interested in them. Um, you know, it, one just hit today. I think Union Pacific uh, had 20, 20 rail cars that uh, that derailed. Nothing toxic there. Uh, so. Um, nothing too terrible, uh, but it does happen a lot. Believe it or not, a thousand a year uh, is is down uh, significantly. So 15 years ago, we used to have 2,000 a year um, wow. in this country. Uh, so it's it's definitely you know a large number, um, and and one that you know I think the focus will be on trying to reduce that, and and certainly in cases when you're when you're covering or you're hauling hazardous freight. Uh, taking extra precautions, I'm sure, will be part of it as well. Yeah, well, certainly if, if this results in better safety measures going forward, then that's at least a silver lining for what's a, a very unfortunate situation. So zooming back out a little bit, Matt, what keeps you up at night when you think about your sector broadly and, and your current recommendation? Yeah, so... Um... Not much keeps me up at night. Uh, so the, the rails, you know, That's good. The, the, the rails are, you know, they operate in duopoly or oligopoly markets. These are companies that have 50% EBITDA margins. They have giant uh, free cash flow. Um, so there are some risks out there. So um, they're definitely worth talking about. And, and one of them is kind of long-term usage of coal. You know, of course, coal has been out of favor for some time now. 
Um, and coal is is definitely something that the that the rails move. Um, you know, the good news here is that uh, the coal that's moved today is about half of what it was in the peak uh, in the U.S. I think the peak was like 08. Um, and they're doing, you know, I think they're doing about 4 million carloads uh, a year this year. And they were doing about 8 million carloads at that time. Um, and so, you know, that's definitely declining, but as a percentage of total for most of these folks, you know, it's 10% or less. Some of them have exposure that's a little bit higher than that. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's, it's profitable. Uh, and so it's good to keep an eye on, uh, you know, the exposures that are out there. Uh, it's definitely, you know, a source of long-term decline from a volume perspective. Um, you know, I think even longer term, um, you know, potentially would be, uh, the, the concern around automated trucks. And so rails definitely enjoy a labor advantage over trucking, right? There's just takes fewer people to run a, to run a rail. Um, although, you know, given the, the Norfolk Southern situation, we might see additional staffing uh, that comes up as a result. But even with additional staffing, you add one or two people per train, uh, it's still a significant labor advantage over trucking. Um, and automated trucks, you know, if they become a reality, would really just negate that advantage um, and make it more difficult for the rails to compete. Um, so technology has a ways to get there for sure. Uh, you know, you talk to some of these techno, techno folks that feel like they're on the cutting edge and they, they'll tell you that it's happening tomorrow. But my own sense is that, you know, we're at least a decade away from mass adoption of this kind of stuff. But nevertheless, when it, when it does hit, uh, it'll be a risk. And certainly to intermodal loads uh, to the railroads, so intermodal loads are really just containers that get passed from boat to rail to truck. Um, and these loads, you know, tend to be you know, priced pretty low. Uh, so they tend to be less profitable for, for the rails. Um, and so yeah, be, given the lower profitability of these loads, I think the risk is manageable, but it's definitely going to be something we're going to be watching out, uh, watching out for and, and will impact kind of overall profitability for the industry. Um, also, those intermodal loads has really been a, a source of growth for most of these railroads. Um, it's likely to go the other way, I think. Uh, but a ways off, you know, probably uh, in, until we get a more significant um, impact there. So th those are kind of the two or two bigger things in addition to some additional, you know, safety requirements that may come out of the, uh, the East Palestine incident. Awesome. So let's finish up with what is your top pick, your top pan, and the best carry trade to start the year? I don't know if that's Norfolk Southern. You can kind of just reiterate yeah. that if that's the case, but hit us with those to to finish us off here. Sure thing. So yeah, I, I would just, uh, you know, given everything that's happened with Norfolk Southern, uh, given how wide it's become, you know, it's implied that at least one uh, rating downgrade at this point, if not more, kind of like one and a half right now. Uh, that is not something that comes up very often in this space. And I think that that is a source of alpha generation that everyone should should take advantage of. So that's definitely my single top pick right now. Um, the other two I kind of already mentioned uh, in terms of uh, picks and pans, they both involve the CPKSU transaction. Uh, so I kind of already went through that one. But KSU, I think, uh, still has about 10 to 15 basis points. Uh, of upside uh, as as they kind of you know the trading levels there kind of move towards a high triple B and as I mentioned KSU will get um, you know an upgrade by S and P immediately uh, to that high triple B and I think over time they'll get it from the other agencies as well and then CP just continues to be tight I mentioned the 31s and 41s uh, you know for good reason there uh, investors are kind of anticipating hey we might we might get a 101. SMR on those, uh, but even outside the 31s and 41s, 
the whole structure is really kind of tight uh, for what it is, which is, you know, it's it's going to be a high triple B uh, type credit, uh, but definitely trading a little bit inside of that, um, which I, th- I just think is, is is too tight. So that that'd be my um, top pan. And then and we'll see how, you know, in in the, in the first part of, of March here, we should get some resolution uh, from the STB in terms of, you know, final approval on this transaction. And I would expect spreads to move, you know, pretty significantly. And, and then we'll have a re-rack situation and, and we'll revisit both of, those, both of those racks. Awesome, Matt. This has been very helpful. Really appreciate you taking your time. Matt Woodruff, our senior investment grade transportation analyst. And I am Zach Griffiths, the senior U.S. investment grade credit strategist here at Credit Sites. Thank you all for joining us and we will catch you next time. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.